0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988.
1: Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
0: You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you
2: can do. One great rock show can change the world. Most rockers know what the Gibson Les Paul or the Fender Telecaster have brought to rock and roll, but the Moog Synthesizer is every bit as important. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We'll take a look at the history of the Moog Synthesizer, and then we'll review
1: the new collection of Kurt Cobain's home recordings. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions.
2: This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, like a lot of musicians, Kurt Cobain left a mountain of cassettes behind him. On one, he had written scraps and insignificant discarded material under no circumstances release after my death. Yet here we have a record. Montage of Heck, the home recordings. We're gonna dive into that later on Sound Opinions.
1: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's Parliament with Flashlight from 1978, Bernie Worrell. There are analog synths all over that song. Specifically, that unforgettable bass line is played on the Mini Moog synthesizer. When we think about analog synths, Moog's probably the name that comes to mind immediately for a lot of people. And for years, the company's flagship has been the Mini Moog Voyager, a slightly modernized version of the same keyboard on that Parliament track. You know, Trent Reznor in an interview recently said the Mini Moog's the archetype of what a synthesizer is and should be. So we were surprised when the Moog company announced recently that it would no longer produce that particular instrument, especially as it comes at a time when interest in analog synths is higher than it's been in years. You look at the charts, you've got M83 and Passion Pit scoring hits that bring back that vintage sound of the 70s and 80s. Last year, you had Future Islands topping a lot of critics' best of 2014 lists with Seasons Waiting on You, a very retro, synth-heavy song. So now you've got acts like Churches, Grimes, Carly Rae Jepsen, even Taylor Swift making synth-pop-inspired records. When Robert Moog debuted the Moog synthesizer back in the late 60s, I mean,
2: little did he know that his creation would become the centerpiece of so many records for so long. Greg, it's uh, no exaggeration to say the Moog is as important to rock history as the Fender Telecaster or the Gibson Les Paul. Why do musicians love these instruments so much? We thought it was worth revisiting our chat with Brian Kehu from back in 2010, Brian's a musician, a producer, he's been a historian for the Bob Moog Foundation, and we started by going over the early history of the Moog. Bob Moog started developing electronic music instruments in the early 60s, starting with the theremin. He loved those things. He first attached a keyboard to one of these instruments in 1964. We asked Brian to tell us about that early technology. What he made was a collection of circuits where you
3: could create sound from scratch. And if you think about it, before that, there were electronic instruments. There were theremins, there were Hammond organs. But his idea was to create something where you could make your own sounds rather than just play music or or a theremin, for example, controls a sound. His idea was to synthesize something from component parts so you could put together this tone and that tone, filter and shape, and you could build something from the ground up, kind of paint by numbers, if you will, with sound.
2: And that was kind of a new idea. I always loved the story, the image of a young Robert Moog, 14 years old, he gets this electronics magazine. It has a circuit, how to build your own Theremin at home, and that's what got him started.
3: Yeah, the Theremin was actually an obsolete instrument by the time he was getting into it. It was designed in the 1920s by the Russian inventor Lev Theremin, and Bob had kind of been interested in this thing, but it was kind of over and done by the time he did it, then tried to make a few commercially, and they'd failed. So he thought, here's a cool circuit I can build, and then he and his father. Put together the very first ones that he made in the workshop below their house.
2: By the time in the early 60s he gets to actually uh, building the first Moog synthesizers, as you said, collections of circuits. We we yeah. think of a synthesizer today, I, I think most lay people, as something with a keyboard, but these things were huge. They were like the size of a refrigerator. All these different modules that you had to, like an old-fashioned telephone switchboard, you had to patch in and out. And the first one was like eleven thousand dollars. Well, one thing that was cool about it, and I think this is a great idea even for today, was his
3: circuits could be designed to be combined in any size. So you could actually get a very small one if you wanted. Most people didn't. They wanted more power. They wanted more flexibility. But you could buy, you know, just one or two modules and use a filter on your radio or on your keyboard. So it's like buying applications
1: for your phone. You can't have enough of them or software (laughs) for your computer. When do we start seeing applications of this device into uh, popular music? Well, popular music
3: is an interesting term. The first popular record with the Moog was Wendy Carlos who created Switched on Bach, which is a classical record done with synthesizer only. about the extremes of that classical music was the furthest thing from electronics so in a way for her to be using it was a very bold step it was to try to prove that this was as valid an instrument as a piano or a violin which is considered very traditional although they are technology of their time so it was kind of interesting
2: the thing we always have to point out to people is when Wendy was making the music of Bach on the synthesizer this was a monophonic instrument at the time which meant you got one note at a time so to make a chord you would have to overdub four or five notes, right?
3: Exactly. You'd take one pass and do the the low notes in the chord and then one pass through the middle notes and so forth. So how long do you figure it took her to actually do the whole Bach (laughs) concertos that she was recording? It's fascinating to listen to because there's so many notes in those as well, too. But when she recorded things, it was also not the easy way out. The way you and I might do it is to get the keyboard from a shop and then plug in the flute sound and play it. But she would create the sound from scratch and then also vary it as she played, the way a real player plays. So it's not just a a beginner's version of it, It's the most advanced form of it is to make the sound shape and change as you play, which most keyboard players still don't do. answer to your question, it's probably weeks and weeks, if not months, per piece, probably several months of each piece.
1: That's incredible. Where where did she get the idea to apply it to a piece of music like that? I assume that prior to this, Brian, it had been used primarily for avant-garde music, experimental-type music forms? Yeah, the cool thing was though that there's a few pop people that
3: you wouldn't expect had bought synthesizers, like the Birds and the monkeys and they were some of the first synthesizer users. Mm-hmm. But they weren't doing records that were very well known, and the little bits they did use is just kind of space noises. So, it was considered a sound-making tool, but it would be made for, in fact, Bob even designed it for people that wanted to make weird sounds, really. Mm-hmm. but Wendy Carlos was the first commercial record that really took off and it was the most popular classical record for many years that had ever sold, for decades at least. It was the top classical record of all time.
1: How difficult would it have been for someone in that era to play or, or ma- even master this instrument for a layman? You know what's the difference between learning to play the Moog synthesizer and say a piano or a saxophone?
3: Oh, it's a uh, playing it itself is not the hard part. It's because this thing comes with no preset sounds. That's the real challenge. So it comes out of the box and you unpack it. You've got to set up a bunch of cables and switches and knobs, even to get the worst sound out of it. You've got to get <laughs> something going. And the funny part was for many years they didn't even have an instruction manual with it. They'd not really written one out. What they used to have was a piece of paper called a patch diagram, and you draw the kind of picture of this incisor and they would draw in the chords and the switches where you might want to put them to put a a beginning sound and you'd start there turning knobs up or down and adjusting settings so you can get what you wanted out of it. But it would definitely be frustrating to a lot of people and they used to, I think they really didn't understand that when they first built it, they were engineers and people that understood how things worked so they kind of assumed that the dumb musician could do it too and it didn't (laughs) always work that way.
2: (laughs) Let's talk about when it began to be a more practical instrument in rock. It's been said of the Mini Moog, that what Kraftwerk, the, the German experimental band turned pop band, did with the Moog was similar to what Chuck Berry did with the electric guitar. But when did we start to see smaller machines that had the keyboard attached that weren't the size of switchboards? It actually wasn't Moog's invention to do that, although they had made very
3: small systems. As I said, you could buy a small thing for your school or for your you know, tabletop if you wanted to. But... In England, there was a little keyboard called the Synthi, the VCS-3, if you will. It's a little portable English synthesizer that has three oscillators and a filter. And that very much was the first small portable-type kit you could take around. A lot of people like that, and I think Moog was even inspired by that. And they soon after made their own Mini Moog, which is a small version of the big system. So the Mini Moog became the most well-known keyboard probably in the 1970s. I think it outsold everything by far.
2: Soon enough, we start seeing these progressive rock musicians with five, six, eight synthesizers sitting on top of their Mellotrons and their Hammond organs, and it's really an inspiring sight.
3: True, it's inspiring, but it's also limiting to the poor person that has to haul them around, or more likely, the roadie. (laughs) (laughs) who has to take them around. But the reason for this, and people may not understand it, is that nowadays when you go to buy a keyboard, it has sounds built in. You can push a button for piano, push a button for strings. And the keyboards back then, you had to literally create sounds from scratch, which is half the fun of it and half a limitation. If I want a bass sound on song number one, I've got to stop between song number one and two and reset 15 or 20 knobs and Mm. get a flute sound for song number two. So they would often have a keyboard for each sound. So you'll have one for my kind of harpsichord sound, I'll have a different one for my bass sound, a different one for my lead sound, and then do very few changes because i bought 12 keyboards to take on tour.
1: Hmm. Wow. So l- l- let's get this straight here. Back in that era, what kind of an expense are we talking about, and how much would one of these things weigh?
3: Well, the expense would be something around the neighborhood of like a Minimug would be around twelve to $1,500, and that was 1970s money. You could buy three guitars for that price. Mm-hmm. So a guitar player was easily set up with his guitar and an amp before the keyboard player even had one keyboard, (laughs) much less a mixer or an amp to put it through or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a limitation is the price. And that was a very small, cheap one, somewhere $5,000, in fact. And that's in 1970s money, that's the price of a car. Sure. Pretty expensive. And the poor keyboard guy, you know, had to do this to keep up with the Joneses (laughs) and to be trendy and whatever cool sounds were on the radio. He had to have at least one keyboard in that price range. And you asked about weight. Most of these were things you could carry under your arm or put them in a flight case and roll them along. But you could easily have 100 pounds in a typical keyboard, and if you're carrying six or eight keyboards, that's a lot of weight.
1: hmm yeah. You not only had to have a certain amount of vision as a musician, but you also had to... It was work. It was a rigorous thing. It was also an economic burden. You really had to want these things <laughs> in order to, uh, to make
3: music on them. But there's also an element that's kind of visually impressive. You remember bands with the big amplifiers that stood as tall as they were on stage, and they'd line the back of the stage with Marshall amplifiers, and it was a very impressive, powerful thing. So if you see Keith Emerson from Emerson Lake and Palmer or Rick Wakeman from Yes, they're surrounded by these giant and big keyboards Mm It's a very powerful, strong sign to see someone on stage doing that... Nowadays, if the same person walks out with a laptop, it's not very impressive. (laughs) So there was an element of it that was actually great for showmanship. It was great for the power of rock and roll. It was great for exciting people. And people said, I want to be that guy up there because he's surrounded by all these cool things and making it into great music.
1: You could not help but wear a cape while playing one, right? Or silver boots
3: or something like that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. for sure.
2: Brian Eno's ostrich feathers, yeah. yeah. Yes. For people who've never had the pleasure of tinkering with a memory mode or, or a mini mode, and, and I have, I'm a drummer, but mm-hmm. I, I love these machines, I think one of the things that's hard to convey to people is just what you were saying before. You might have to turn 15 knobs and dials to get a sound. That can be frustrating. If you want to say, I want, please make your synthesizer, the producer says, sound like a flute, Uh, good luck you know maybe you'll get there in an hour maybe you won't in the meantime you're gonna hear like you know the Martian elephants and uh, you know the the narwhals wailing you know and that's the joy you never know what's gonna happen when you turn one of those knobs
3: it's very true and in fact when I first got my first synthesizer in the 1970s I had no idea how it worked but we would set it up and make a noise and I'd fess with the knobs until I kind of learned what function that one did oh that makes the pitch go up and down and this one makes it darker and brighter So it's a challenge, but it also means that you're going to create something unique to you because you're not trained the same way as everyone else. So a Brian Eno would sound different than the guys from Kraftwerk, and that would sound different than Keith Emerson because they knew how to work it in a different way. ¶¶
1: almost like these machines had personality. They were, they were all so unstable that they literally had their own set of sounds unique to that particular machine.
3: Yes, there's a bit of it where they've made choices for you. You've only got 15 knobs and they've chosen which ones you get to adjust, but that's thousands of possibilities. And so as you're playing with it, you're going to come up with some really interesting things that maybe a trained person, in fact like myself, who knows what he's doing now of course, would not make the same choices because that's not the way we do things. But some kid who walks in and just turns knobs could make an amazing sound.
2: I think that that's one of the things that bands are going back to now. Now, we mentioned you were a producer. I mean, that fantastic Mm -hmm. album, Extraordinary Machine with Fiona Apple, I've seen you credited on records by, you know, everybody from John Bryan to uh, The Eels and Amy Mann. So people come to you and they say, hey, work some of that old synth magic. People are drawn to the old Moogs in particular because of the very weirdness and unpredictability. Yeah, it has an interesting thing. A lot of them have been uh, given too much
3: reputation for that, although they do kind of stay in tune. They don't go crazy out of tune, otherwise you wouldn't be able to use them, but they drift a bit. And that's a lot like a guitar, which drifts a bit, or a violin, or a human voice, which drifts a lot sometimes. Mm -hmm. So you can definitely use things like that. They don't have to be perfectly stable. There's an element of that that I think makes it more human, more organic, and so people don't treat it as too synthetic, whereas a very modern keyboard is always perfectly in and always perfectly stable if you want it
1: to be. As Jim was saying, there's a lot of contemporary groups that seem very much drawn to that early era of the synthesizers that you were talking about. There's sort of a romance about it. How difficult is it to get that quote-unquote vintage synthesizer sound that they're looking for? I mean, are these instruments widely available? How easy are they to get and put on a record? Yeah, they're actually pretty easy
3: nowadays because some people have gone away from that world. They've gone into software and laptops but there's a lot of old instruments floating around, and they're not all expensive. And I think it's an interesting draw why people want these. You mentioned a lot of current bands still use them. I think part of it is the nostalgia effect, or maybe that they're fond of Stevie Wonder Records, even if they weren't born then, and they like those sounds. ¶¶ The other part is the interface is so much fun. Volkswagen called it farvagnuggen, which is the you know human mm. interface. How much connectivity do you have with your thing? How much controllability? And they really designed these things to have a great attention to that. They have big knobs. They have big switches. They have kind of a fun interface instead of just some little clickety, tiny plastic switches. So in a lot of cases, I think people are drawn to it because they enjoy working the instrument.
2: We'll continue our celebration of the Moog synthesizer and its role in rock and roll after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And then we'll review a posthumous release from Kurt Cobain and I'll drop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. <laughs>
0: Er war sehr attraktiv und auch sehr muskulös. Er war ein Traum von einem Mann. Red vom Jupiter.
1: Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis, my partner is Greg Cott, and we are exploring the legacy of the Moog synthesizer with our guest, Brian Kehu. Uh, Brian's been a historian for the Bob Moog Foundation. He's an author, producer, musician. He had a band, the Moog Cookbook. Brian, that was a project between you and jellyfish keyboardist Roger Joseph Manning that put out three albums with a whole lot of Moog on them. Uh, The idea of the band was that the two of you would make sounds for for these records entirely out of vintage synthesizers.
3: Yeah, it was definitely a concept idea even before we started, but there were a lot of records made. Just after Switched On Bob came out, people saw that This record had come out and sold millions of copies doing Bach on the synthesizer. So why don't we do Rolling Stones? Why don't we do Burt Bacharach? Why don't we do country music on the synthesizer? And then we'll have a million-selling record, and it never worked for anyone else again. (laughs) So there are tons of these records out there, and they're all pretty funny. (laughs) these records came out and they all failed, so we collected those independently, Roger and I. And his girlfriend was laughing about, you know, you guys should make a record sometime doing that style, but with other music. So we decided to take modern music, which was grunge at the time, if you will. Yeah. The kind of Nirvana and Soundgarden thing, very heavy guitar rock. And no one was using keyboards. So we thought, let's do an all-keyboard record as kind of a punk rock response to what guitar people are doing. (laughs) And so we did it for fun, it was definitely a joke, but we used interesting ideas, mixing styles from the 1972 and 78 periods, disco sounds, things like that, and made cover tunes. kind of funny to poke fun at the people who thought synthesizers were the sound of the future when they were actually becoming the sound of the past. Hmm.
1: Well, you wouldn't know it nowadays, though, I mean, you, you see again a number of bands referencing that style. Brian, do you see us in a renaissance now when it comes to the synthesizer and the Moog, specifically in terms of just bands wanting that as a part of their sound?
3: I think what's interesting about it is it had a period when it went away, and I was talking about the period in the 80s and 90s when things got more digital. People got into samplers and other types of keyboards. But a few diehards, maybe like myself and a few other people, kept using them. And then it came around that people said, you know, those are not dated anymore. Kind of like bell-bottom jeans did go away for a long time. (laughs) It's not a trend anymore. It's just kind of one of the features you can do. But the style came around as being a very valid thing. People said, I like analog synthesis. I like things with the big knobs and switches on them. I like to work that way. Kind of similar to the way you buy a 1950s style Fender guitar, but it's not considered retro.
1: I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about not only today's innovators, but the, the ones that you consider essential from the early days. Sure. You can look at 1960s
3: with Wendy Carlos's record in the Bach thing, and then it turns into a little bit of the Beatles using it and a little bit of Keith Emerson and Yes with Rick Wakeman. And then some jazz people took it over into the jazz formula, which is completely different, but a good kind of expressive way to play this incisor, and it was Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock, Joe all.
1: Do you have any particular favorite tracks from that era?
3: Well, uh, definitely the standout track that everyone remembers is Lucky Man by Keith Emerson, Mm -hmm. and I think it's just a very clean, simple Moog sound. He had just got the synthesizer probably that day, and they were learning how to work it, so it wasn't the most advanced sound. It was very simple, but it works very definitively as, like, this is a Moog synthesizer, and this is what they sound like. And then as you move on, you have people who can't really play. It's quite the opposite. You go away from the jazz and the progressive rock people to people like Depeche Mode and Kraftwerk, and they're basically playing with one or two fingers. They don't even have training to play, but they love the sound and they love the purity of it. Gary Newman's a good example of that. of did riff rock maybe like black sabbath used to do but on synthesizers
1: newman was coming out of a punk band i mean he was in a Very guitar much. based punk band and then he said okay i'm going to use these newfangled instruments to uh, to create my punk sound and it happened to be a keyboard
3: exactly and the same aesthetic applies to that we don't want to play too much we don't like to play long solos like eric clapton we want to play short melodic mm-hmm. parts for songs and then early records like depeche mode and joy division people like that started using their keyboards to bring out a new sound, a modern sound to them, but not referring to the jazz or the rock or anything like that.
1: And what about today?
3: Well, today there's so many people using it, it's even hard to narrow it down. But you can even back up a few years to people that kind of brought it back. People like Money Mark with the Beastie Boys started using vintage synthesizers as the lead instrument, and it became a very cool thing. Now we've got groups like The Faint and MGMT, people like that, using it as part of their normal sound. And one of my favorites is a band called Kinky. They're a Mexican group. Yes. uh, Sometimes lives here in L.A. And they're amazing because they mix the style of traditional Mexican Latin rock, and they have guitars and amps and drums, but they have uh, percussion, kind of like Santana would do if you will, but also mixing it with the DJ and dance and electronica sounds, which is really cool, very powerful.
1: got a very rich tradition of the Moog in popular music. What's the next vista? What's the next innovation in this area? Do you see any innovations coming down the road that are going to change the way the instrument is approached? What's kind of interesting is it is very
3: retro in a way, because the circuits are designed in a way that have limitations. However, more and more we have options to make these things cheaper. And what's kind of funny is the first ones that Bob Moog designed, as well as a few other people back in the 60s, were these big patch panel systems. They are and probably were the most powerful ones ever built. And everything made in the 70s and 80s was kind of a very small subset kind of like your ipod is a small version of what your computer can do mm-hmm. but the 60s version was definitely the full computer you had so much more power and range and this is what keith emerson would be playing and wendy Carlos in her studio to do clockwork orange and things so you can create these beautiful incredible sounds that were not possible on what depeche mode or Kraftwerk used the return is now to bigger systems like that and you'll find most very hip producers and some really cool bands are starting to buy up vintage systems that are very big and large, very expensive. And now companies are saying, well, since they cost so much, why don't I make a new version that costs less? Mm. So there are these kind of companies starting up where you do a vintage-style synthesizer and they truly amazed Bob Moog when he used to see those come back. He said, Hmm. that's like people coming back with a spinning wheel or a washboard (laughs) to bring that back as modern technology. It's so weird for him to see that come back. And he said, but it's cool that people are buying this way and they're thinking, I can create my own sounds. I don't use presets that they made for me at the store. I create from scratch and I can create these wild and evolving and changing sounds that have never been possible on keyboards before.
2: Brian Kayu is the former historian of the Bob Moog Foundation He's also a musician, a producer, and the founder of the Moog Cookbook Brian, thanks so much for being on Sound Opinions Thank you guys too, it was fun Now Greg, to wrap up our love letter to the Moog, I think we each have to pick a song that we really love, prominently featuring this instrument.
1: So many choices, and you are really killing me by forcing me to narrow it down to just one. But I'm gonna go a little bit far afield into the jazz world, and, and the way jazz sort of started to influence rock and vice versa in the early 70s. Really important to note that when a serious jazz musician like Herbie Hancock adopted the analog synthesizers for his own use, that was, a, that was a serious moment for this instrument in legitimizing it. Because here you have a guy who was, you know, creating massively popular jazz recordings in the 60s on piano and keyboards, not only in his solo career, but with the Miles Davis Quintet. You can't get any more legit than that. Serious musician chops with herbie hancock here he is adopting this new technology creating wonderful jazz fusion music with it in the early seventies specifically with the group the headhunters which he formed with bassist paul jackson drummer harvey mason and saxophonist bernie maupin their nineteen seventy three debut record you're gonna hear right off the bat a marvelous use of analog synthesizers as the basis for a classic jazz track called Chameleon. would be covered countless times afterward, not only by jazz musicians, but by rock bands like Government Mule and String Cheese Incident. The bass line in this track is not created by a bass guitar, but in fact by Herbie Hancock's ARP Odyssey synthesizer. It was a close cousin to the Minimoog, a more portable, more affordable analog synthesizer that Hancock used widely on a lot of his recordings at this time. So he's creating this bass line with the ARP synthesizer. He's dancing with the electronic bass guitar as well as the drums, creating this polyrhythmic funky grid underneath the solos. Borrowing from Sly Stone, borrowing from Parliament Funkadelic, using this new cutting edge technology to create this cool new sound, and over the top you got the jazz solos. The one that you're gonna hear here is Hancock on his clavinet, another new electronic instrument that was widely being used in the 70s by not only people like Hancock, but by Stevie Wonder and numerous other funk and jazz musicians. Here it is, a portion of Chameleon, a cutting edge analog synthesizer track from the 70s from Herbie Hancock's Headhunters on Sound Opinions. That is Herbie Hancock's Headhunters with a track called Chameleon. Great example of analog synthesizer, I think, uh, being used in a cutting-edge jazz recording in
2: 1973. Jim, what do you got? Absolutely, Greg. I like that pick. You go to the Pitchfork Music Festival or any cool gathering of underground buzz bands today, and three out of five bands you see are going to have a Moog on stage. Mm-hmm. Not many of them use them for more than just making noise. I think in the last 20 years, the band that has incorporated the Moog into its music better than anybody else from the indie rock spectrum is Stereolab. Formed in London in 1990, the two key players, the only players that have been there all through the band, Tim Gain on guitar and Moog and other keyboards, and uh, Laetitia Sadier on vocals and guitar and Moog and other keyboards. They're the heart and soul of the band. A couple of key elements, we had Noy on the show with Michael Roter. They took that motorik beat of that German group from the early 70s. They paired it with these wonderful layered harmony vocals, early 60s space age bachelor pad music, mm-hmm. right? And the third ingredient was all about the Moog. I remember talking to them, they had to boil it all down. When they came to the States, there was so much equipment that they used on the recordings, they had to choose the one to carry because this stuff was heavy, and they had to deal with voltage conversion problems. The one to take when you were taking only one was the Minimoog. Hmm. There's a wonderful video, look it up on YouTube, of Stereolab playing a song from its fourth album, on the uh, Jules Holland TV show. And Laetitia starts out on the mini Minimoog getting noises out of this that are dialing in from Mars. I don't know where they're coming from. The song is called Le Ypres Sound. It's by Stereolab on Sound Opinions. That is Les Ipere Sound from Stereo Lab's 1996 album Emperor Tomato Ketchup, a great use of Moog Synthesizer. But we want to turn it over to you. What's your favorite example of an analog synth record? Let us know on our hotline at 888-859-1800. Next up, Greg and I will review a new collection of home recordings from Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain. Then I'll add another track to the Desert Island Jukebox. That's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Kot with Jim DeRigatis. You're listening to a little bit of the new Kurt Cobain record, Montage of Heck, The Home Recordings. That is called And I Love Her. Familiar to most of our listeners, I would imagine. It's a cover of a great Beatles song done in an intimate acoustic fashion by Kurt Cobain. Cobain, of course, killed himself at the age of 27 in 1994. But the legacy burns on. He left behind only a couple of official studio records in his brief lifetime with Nirvana and has gone on to sell millions of millions of records posthumously. The estate of Cobain is estimated at hundreds of millions of dollars. It is that estate, which is uh, overseen by his widow, Courtney Love, and his only surviving child, Francis Bean, who authorized a recent documentary film by brett morgan called montage of heck it was released earlier this year in the course of researching that film putting together this intimate look at kurt cobain the private person as opposed to the public celebrity morgan was given access to about 200 hours of tape that cobain had put together in creating demo recordings just goofing around, you know, of him strumming in front of a television set. Now that 200-hour archive has been winnowed down to a 13-track CD, a double vinyl album, and a 31-track box set, which is being billed as Montage of Heck, the home recordings. Here's a sample of what's on those particular recordings. It's called The Yodel Song from Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck on Sound Opinions. <laughs>
2: That is the Yodel Song by Kurt Cobain. Greg, let me start by asking you a question. Have you ever owned a four-track recorder, cassette recorder? I have never owned one, but I've uh, been in the room while those have been <laughs> being operated. oh yes. well, yeah, I've been in bands since <laughs> yeah. I was 13, and I've yeah. had a four-track recorder. Now I have a digital recorder all my life, Okay. One of the first things you do when you get this toy is you sit down, and you do stupid stuff like yodel into it, and you gargle, and you burp, and you put echo on it, and you say, this is the greatest thing ever, and you never intend for anyone to listen to that. It's self-indulgence. It's playing around. The fact that Kurt Cobain wrote on one of these cassettes, scraps and insignificant discarded material, Brett Morgan, who is very, very full of himself, I really found flaws with his film Montage of Heck, has said this was not scraps and insignificant discarded material. Yes, it is. This is grave robbery. Of the worst sort. This is a good friend of yours, someone you admire, dying, and you go through his underwear drawer and you sell. Um, I've always decried the grave robbing of Jim Morrison, of Jimi Hendrix, of Janis Joplin, of John Lennon. All right, picking through the scraps left behind. All of these artists were visionaries and were meticulous about what they released in their lifetime you know Kurt Cobain could be very very sloppy on stage in explosions of chaotic noise with Nirvana but he was a control freak interviewing him when In Utero came out he was very much in control of every note that was released officially as Nirvana music the fact that these songs the yodel song which is just him yodeling these guitar uh strum songs these ambient songs these yelling songs these these shoutings. The fact that this is seeing the light of day, is just it's of interest to biographers and no one else should ever have heard this. This is a trash it for the content of this recording and a double trash it for the impetus of releasing this stuff from an, an artist we all admired
1: so much. I can't express how appalled I was when I first heard this, Jim. I admire Cobain a great deal. I think he was one of the great songwriters of his particular time. I think the work holds up very well. This is a desecration of that legacy. The fact that Cobain did not leave behind a will dictating how his work should be handled. And what happens is that your detritus, which is what this is, is going to be picked through and it's going to be released. And people are going to sell that. Yeah. They're going to sell it, and there's going to be willing people out there who want to buy it. And, and it's really a disgrace. I think he would be appalled if he, if these, he these was are vultures. able to understand what was going on here. I'm looking at process. We want a window into process. Gee, how did the Beatles make those amazing recordings? How did Kurt Cobain make the songs that had ended up on in utero, one of the masterpiece records of the last 40 years? Yes, we want to know that kind of thing. But these recordings give us very little insight into process and more into the stoned ramblings of an artist who is distracted and bored. And we don't really get a whole lot of insight into the mind of a creative talent. It is an exploitation of the First Order in the history of the Elvis Presley, Jimi Hendrix, Tupac Shakur uh, desecrations. It's right up there with the very worst of that. You should feel dirty for even just touching the thing. (laughs) Should be avoided at all costs. I can't express trash it enough about this particular recording, but yes, we do want to hear what you listeners have to say about this recording. Give us a call at 888-859-1800 and express your opinion about Montage of Heck. The Home Recordings.
4: I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just to cast away, island lost the sea, oh. Now I'm stranded on my own. Stranded, far from home. Come on. Do
0: you remember? We were shipwrecked together.
1: Stranded, I'm so far from home. Stranded, yeah. As often as possible, we like to take a trip to the Desert Island and play a record. We cannot live without Jim. You're popping a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. What
2: are we going to hear? Greg, the track I'm going to play, I'm doing for two reasons. Number one, I got such good response to my last Desert Island pick, that band Red Buckets, from the indie rock 80s in New Jersey I thought I'd go back to that era So many great bands, right? They were too late for punk When mm-hmm. the spotlight was on this kind of music And too early for alternative So there were so many bands That kind of never got heard Outside of very small clubs and college radio Left a legacy of recordings That were only on vinyl And are now forgotten, right? I'm going to play another band in that area But also when we met our current intern Libby Gormley a few weeks ago I start singing this song The Gormleys will miss Me. Me. And everybody on the Sound Opinions production staff started looking at me like I was crazy, okay? But I couldn't help it. You know, that, that name uh, was, it was part of this great song by a band called the 27 Various, from Minneapolis. Now, Ed Ackerson was the leader of this band. They put out five albums between 1987 and 1992. The band he had before that, a mod revival band called The Dig, and the band he had after that, you were very fond of, Polera, which was the American shoegaze band, the best American shoegaze band. Both of those groups got much more attention than the 27 Various, but I love this group. They were taking something else era kinks, and Robin Hitchcock... Nobody in America ever imitates Robin Hitchcock or is inspired by Robin Hitchcock and the Paisley Underground sound of those California psychedelic revivalist bands and really exploring that music. I love all five albums, incredibly hard to find. Several of them were vinyl only. A few of them are on CD. Those are really obscure. I'm going to go to the most obscure of these records, the first album. Now, in time, the 27 Various became a very good quartet. Ed Ackerson on guitar and vocals, my buddy Jed Mayer, one of my oldest friends on drums, another of my oldest friends, Jay Orff on bass and vocals. They toured a lot. I did some touring with them, but in the very beginning, it was just Ed, The guitarist, vocalist, songwriter, and the drummer, Jed, just the two of them, made this record called High. And one of the highlights of this record is this song, The Gormleys Will Miss Me. Now, it's very Hitchcock derivative, okay? But it's about this guy who's singing about how the next-door neighbors, who he always annoyed, are going to miss him now that he's gone. I don't know where he went. Maybe he went off on tour with an indie rock band in the 80s. I don't know. But it's very, very funny. And it's my little tribute to our intern, Libby Gormley. 27 Various on Sound Opinions.
0: And the Gormleys will miss me now I'm not around. And I'll miss them too, but for the nagging sound, the dog in the morning. And I crawl out of bed to have no tea. What kind of pop I'm on the way with no tea? for now I'm not around who will dog only wake for now I'm not around It's a time discouraging. Fear it's quite grisly While well, I'm not around
4: I'd rather not, not think around. on it wow.
2: The Gormleys Will Miss Me by the 27 Various from the High album in 1987. Digging deep for that one, Greg. What do we have on the show next week?
1: Next week, Jim, we've got the top-notch rock journalist Peter Goralnik talking about his new
2: biography of Sam Phillips. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lin, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Libby Gormley. On sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
0: I'm a fool to
4: want you. I'm a fool to want you. Hi, my name is Mike. I'm staying in Union Grove, Wisconsin. Uh, A few remarks about your turkey shoot program. First of all, thank you very much. It's a badly needed uh, show. Regarding the Bob Dylan album of his covers of Frank Sinatra songs, The guy's an incredible writer, just incredible. However, his voice is useless. He might mean well, but his voice does not carry and command your attention the way, for example, I thought of a perfect person to cover Sinatra's songs. This may sound a bit hokey, but it's it's accurate. Tom Jones. This guy's voice is deep, commanding. He's got an incredible range. Yes, there were times cover Sinatra songs far better than Dylan. Dylan's voice, I think the the key word here is suitable. It's just not suitable to cover the Sinatra
3: collection that he did. Thanks a lot, guys. Hey guys, this is Ben from Chicago. I wanna thank you for doing the Grimes review. A lot of people whose musical opinions I really respect have been recommending Grimes to me for a few years and I keep thinking, Yeah, okay, I'm I'm gonna check that out. And that song, California, I'm so glad you played it because I I don't want that on any of my media. That was awful. I really wouldn't want that to ever pop up on Shuffle. There might be other great stuff that she's done. I'm sure there is. I'm sure that, you know, the people whose opinions I respect, like you guys, really like her. But boy, that was, if that's any example, uh, I'm going to stay far, far away.
0: Hi, it's uh, Mike calling from Chicago. And uh, I have to tell you about a local band here in Chicago called the warm ones. And honestly, you could splice this in nicely for a buried treasure episode or a rock doctors episode because honestly, I just happened to catch these guys by catching a band I want to see and just seeing one of the opening acts. And they just really blew me away. They're just playing really good pop music. And I kind of would place some them somewhere between uh, Elvis Costello and mid 70s kinks with maybe, I don't know, some of the tongue in cheek humor of Morrissey. And it's just really great stuff.
4: I caught you going through my room. Tell me what you're on to. Tell me what you're on to. my fingers like small spies, tracing detailed pictures of your eyes. Can't believe I wouldn't notice that you're peering through my window with a photograph friends. Maybe we'd be better off as friends.
0: Although growing in size, these guys could really, really use a champion. And I hope you guys will love them as much as I do. All right, have a great night.
4: Because everything you have ever loved is cursed. Why do you insist I keep hiding things from you? Because you smile. Like no
1: a more messaging. Up like a leaf for to give us your opinions on sound opinions, call our hotline 888 859 1800. We'll be back next week with more sound opinions produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.